Welcome back to Toddler's Pockets, episode 16. Cool. Uh, and back with us, we have Mr. West of Chance and Miss Sarah Miller. Welcome, y'all. Hey, how's it going? Greetings. And so this time we were going through Harry Potter Volume 3, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, and we were going to go through, and we're going through, chapters 6, 7, and 8. Talons and Tea Leaves, meet a new professor there. The Boggart in the Wardrobe, meet a new professor and have a new method of um, dark, defense against the dark arts, uh, the first practical lesson. And then 8, Flights, Fly to the Fat Lady, which we, we agreed to go to because we thought that the main action of the story, the main mystery, really took hold there. And it, it, it really, I think that just looking at it now, having just reread it I, I i would totally agree with us uh from last week and say that that is the moment when evil makes its way back into hogwarts mm -hmm. that is when the real story begins it's almost as if the story begins twice right when you get to hogwarts and then when hogwarts when something anomalous or unique happens that requires somebody to walk the path of the hero somebody to differentiate in order to complete this task that everybody else is beneath either and usually just because of their own lack of curiosity or willpower right like harry's not that he's like a good wizard but he's no hermione <laughs> you know it's like hermione's incredible like she's like slowing down time so she can take even more classes now and i actually that's something i was interested in talking about too without even bringing my outline into question like, do you think that there is more tension between Hermione and Ron as, uh, as symbolized by their pets uh, having so much tension, which causes tension with them because Hermione and Ron and Harry are starting to walk slightly different paths as they start to differentiate in the young adulthood? Hermione is, you know, she's like the honor student who's now taking all the APs, who's going to be like applying to Duke. And like, they're like the guys who are like slacking off a little bit, pretty good, probably going to go to a good state school, um, but definitely not having the same goals as Hermione. Um, and that like how they live is, and what their goals are in life is, it seems it's like it might be manifesting some conflict between them and their initial sort of identification as new students at Hogwarts, right? It's as if they're going to have to develop their relationship in order to get through these conflicts. Hmm. Well, um, I think when you're a kid, you tend to make friends with people who are like you, hmm. um, with whom you have quite a bit in common. Um, it could be you, you grew up in the same neighborhood. It could be your parents or friends, et cetera. But I think the hallmark of a more mature person is the capacity to find friendship with people who are different. Um, I mean, I think we certainly all experienced that when we went to grad school and then even beyond. Um, uh, some of some cosmetic differences, yes, but also intellectual differences. Um, Part of growing up is learning to see the same core in wrapped in different things which i think um you know defense against the dark arts class really exposes for some of them that you know they all have a fear and they all have the capacity to um like transform that fear but what they fear is all quite different um but it doesn't 
necessarily manifest as like a hierarchy of better or worse, stronger or weaker, but um, I do think that that's, that's an interesting point. I think she's really annoyed that they, they cheat, um, mm -hmm. like, and they want help on homework. Um, like they're trying to cut corners and we know how she feels about rules. Um, so. Yeah. And well, you met, you mentioned several interesting things that I like there, like the capacity to face your fears in a good classroom and how a good classroom mm -hmm. is precisely the place where you fa feel safe enough to face your fears, not safe because you do not face your fears, which I think right. is Precisely the aspect of each class that's so interesting. When we see the mandrakes and herbology, danger, for sure. When we see this hippogriff and care for magical creatures, <coughs> that's scary. Talents, it better bow to you, and you better be respectful. I really like that. It's almost as if it's sort of like the spirited aspect of man, that middle soul that Aristotle and Dante talk about so much, the human mm. soul, um, how you have to respect the beast within those around you. If they happen to be magical, well, that beast is like a hippogriff, right? It's an admixture mm -hmm. of human and, well, God, essentially, right? But, um, but uh, definitely something, something fantastic and out of this world in the same way a half horse, half uh, griffin, or half eagle is uh, out of this world. And again, her, she shows her classics background with hippogriff, Hippo, of course, being one of the Latin words for, for horse, equus being the other, uh, from which we get equestrian. Um, yeah, but um, the other part you mentioned that I thought was really interesting that, I, that I wanted to ask about is, to what extent is this a book um, about uh, accepting people for their differences precisely because part of education is that you differentiate? Uh, yeah. Because, if it's a good education, you are not all going to be the same, nor walk the same path along the, edu the education. You're going to become very different people by the end of it, is the ideal, I think. You wouldn't want to be the same person at the end of an education. I mean, that was Wes's big joke about one of our colleagues who claimed that he won the summer, the summer quiz-a-thon every year. Did he learn anything while he was at St. John's? Like, you know, and... Um, so, well, I, I guess I wanted to tangent from that and say, what did you think about Hagrid's first class? Mm. Um, because I just, it makes, I'm thinking about transformations and how the faculty of Hogwarts is transforming and how that sort of supports your sort of widely political view of the changing political scenery of Hogwarts and the world in which Hogwarts finds itself nested in our world, uh, Sarah. Uh, the now we have Hagrid who is this expelled, exiled, half-troll uh, who has everything against him. Now, a professor. But the forces of you know, society or you know, the, the strong conservative element does not care for him being on the staff. He, is not, he does not have the credentials they want. And yet, who better for care of magical creatures than Hagrid? Yeah, I mean, I... I felt so much for him in this scene, especially having been that first year teacher, um, you know, in my life. I know um, what it's like to plan what you think is a really cool lesson and then 
have like that shithead kid sorry i'm gonna curse um who like doesn't listen to the directions and then kind of ruins it yeah (laughs) um anyway but um last time we were talking about um uh like widening widening the circle of who uh, who constitutes like a constituent within a community, right? I, I'm not making that up. I just no, want to confirm right. that. That's right. We were talking about, and I think Hagrid being elevated, say, to the status of professor, like you said, who better? But um, it it just broke my heart when at the end of the lesson or at the end of the day, he said, maybe we should have just done something easier than hippogriffs, right? With like... Um, slobber worms or something um and we know that like in later chapters he does kind of start punting on lesson plans and when he does this he like lowers the expectations for students to rise to like an a, a challenge um i think um the teachers who whose lessons i don't know maybe this is just because this is what she chooses to feature but i think you know both in the book and in life as a teacher that the times when you do not negotiate the difficulty or the rigor of your class, but rather very carefully scaffold them into success. Those are the times when the teacher is bringing them quite literally from a place where they don't know anything to a place where they know something. Mm. Um, And every time you lower your standards or every time you make something easier than you should be than it than it than it needs to be or than it than it could be you're effectively saying to a student i don't think you can do it at this level so i'm going to lower my standards for you because i have assumptions about your capacity right so there's like a there's a love communicated in challenge for sure um and then so it's it's we've talked you've talked about it, you brought it up quite a bit alex of like the um the person who ferries you from one side of the river to another i forget yes. the word that you used for it psycho um yeah but like how is 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 it possible that the teacher is like that and hagrid is actually a great example of that in yes. this particular episode that like this thing that frightens the bejesus out of these kids so much so that none of them want to participate and I've been hairy in the past where you're like man I feel really bad for the teacher so I'm going to raise my hand and volunteer um but um it's ultimately a really scary experience but something that he's able to do and then he watches all of his peers follow his lead and kind of feels a little bit delighted like a little prefiguring of the Dumbledore's army situation that um you know, that, like, Hagrid is a great teacher, and that's what's crazy, like, um, because he doesn't have the formal training, um, you know, you would say, or he's, like, half-giant, or he doesn't have great English, or whatever, how could he, how could he be the person to take them from one side of the river to another, but he actually does more than, sorry, Wes, I mean, like, he's not, he's better than Professor Binns. No. Um. <laughs> okay, Shots fired. words. I was. Wands fire. I was gonna say that. Um, I felt really bad for Hagrid right when I realized that I had forgotten how to 
stroke the spine of the monster book of monsters um mm. and and i was like oh man like i would not have figured that out as a student and i would have felt uh really like i'd, I'd let him down you know that that moment for me even before the um the part where Mal malfoy mm. messed up the lesson and all that um even before that when when he when he sort of crestfallen that nobody has has stroked the spine of their book yet and got it to open um that for me was was a, a point where i I really felt for him. Um, I thought the uh, the the way that Harry um, agrees to to go first, um, I thought was an interesting parallel with uh, the other two classes that we see here, where where uh, Harry is is also singled out in different ways. He's singled out in divination because he's got the um, the grim, and then he's also singled out in well by being left out um, of Lupin's class in the Defense Against the Dark Arts, Boggart. Mm. So I don't know what you guys made of that um, kind of parallelism. It, obviously, the Talons and Tea Leaves, there's a, there's a closer parallel between the two uh, former classes, a, a less ten, a more tenuous one because it's in the next chapter. But it's uh, there's definitely something going on there. Um, and and that Harry, you know, in the one case, he 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 volunteers out of um, yeah friendship for Hagrid really. In the other cases, he's he's left he's left to one side. It's not his choice, you know. Yeah, I was uh, I, at the very least, I I would say that they they these scenes provide a sense of balance to Harry as a character, not simply as the embodiment of the universal hero, which is what I would say I think he is, which is why I think these books sold so many copies. Um, and do you all have your books out right now? Just to mention something odd. Sure. Do you see who's holding the reign of Buckbeak on the front of the American version? Um, I've got the British version, so no, but... There's a, I have an image I, I can share it, share it really quickly. Can you see that now, Sarah? Or mm. what about now? Yeah. So I just want to say this looks like it's her hand and she's holding the rein. Yeah. But I'm not sure whose hand this is. It could be Harry's. <laughs> but that's just an odd location. So I'm just wondering if uh, these are both her hands. Um, well, it could be from a, a scene later in the book. Okay. Right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think it clearly is a scene later in the book. But it's like, what, what are these hands doing? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't see the hands that you're speaking of, but you you're making me very curious. <laughs> it, I mean, sometimes you have to indulge yourself with just a little bit of art interpretation here, but I'm just not, I mean, it is very interesting that Hermione here, who we don't know yet whether this is Hermione, it could be Ginny, that hair is like awfully close to red, uh, holding that rein, it's, um, I don't know, it's a very provocative idea that she is the one who's actually guiding the action. As if, even though we get yeah. Harry's perspective, to some extent, though, Harry, Hermione's in the background. She's the one driving the action of the text. 
Um, and we do find out that she's doing some pretty rad things. She will help out with Buckbeak's trial quite a bit, again, behind the scenes. And it's as if she just, she starts to learn, and everybody knows I'm a Hermione fan, but it's as if she starts to learn that where true mastery lies, where her true gifts will lie, where, will be where she doesn't need to show off, but just gets work done. Mm. And that she doesn't need everybody around her knowing that. She can just do it. Yeah. And that that's how that's how it can be. And I mean, that is how she has to become, right? She actually has to keep it to herself, how she is going to all of these classes. And so she is sort of necessarily taking the back seat in order to accomplish sort of, you know, great things for a student in the world of a student. Um, so I thought that was interesting. I forget the original question that I was actually supposed to be answering here that- No, it was Wes, it was Wes's question about like the parallels that he's um, sort of being singled out. I think it's interesting that not only is he single, I mean, he is a single kid who's not at um, Hogsmeade, or is he, is he not at Hogsmeade with like a, one of their random kids, but- Colin and his friends. Yeah, he's-, he's Oh, he's, John. He's, um, yeah, he's singled out there. Um, he's also, um, he's singled out in the way that he interacts with the adults in the, in the story, um, particularly, uh, I think, like, Professor Lupin um, seems to take a shine to him. Um, and then the way that, um, uh, 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 what's his name, Cornelius Fudge, um, treats him sort of gingerly or, you know, with exception. Um, I like, I don't know what else to make of that, Wes, for your question, but maybe it seems like people are shielding, shielding him from information yeah. or shielding him from um, a, like a potentially dangerous or um, a scary experience. And maybe that is well-intentioned and maybe there's a difference between keeping someone out of knowledge and arming them with the ability to, arming them with knowledge, um, which is what we'll later see, I guess, um, Professor Lupin do for him in a way that other members of the faculty are trying to keep him in the dark as opposed to keeping him um, strong. Given him the ability to produce light. I, to follow up on that, I completely agree. I think that that may very well be a comment on sort of the modern uh, family teacher situation where you have so many sort of helicopter parents or parents who are concerned about the mm -hmm. safety of their children and children who are concerned about the safety of themselves, in fact, mm -hmm. um, especially those who are in the college age right now, our former students. And um, I, I think the uh, the the idea that this is getting at is that you know and that I think will reach a crescendo with Professor Umbridge is is that if you constrain the world of the students they never have to understand the true evil of the world because maybe we can protect them from those realities but the unfortunate thing about that is that doesn't prepare them for anomalous information reception in their lives like there the story of the Buddha just like the story of Adam and Eve is of the necessary intrusion of anomaly into your life no matter what and that no matter how well situated you are you're going to have to deal with threat and that's why Hagrid I would agree is a great teacher because he's a great practitioner of what he teaches regardless of his ability to articulate himself which would make him a great 
teacher. But because he's such a good practitioner, uh, Her- he, he gives Harry the lesson of a lifetime. Yeah. And again, Harry flies first of everybody. Um, he flies just like he flew on the broom. I guess you could say, I think Malcolm no. technically did that, I suppose. Um, but uh, he was the first Gryffindor. Um, I think the other thing. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I think I was just gonna say. I think the other thing that um, Hagrid is a great teacher. Um, that makes him a great teacher is something that Wes pointed out. What you said about like how crestfallen he was that they didn't figure out the book, right? Yeah. That like he clearly spent so much time thinking about the book, and to him. Um, it's a mystery to solve. It's a creature to be cared for. He sees in all of these magical creatures, these beings that deserve our wonder and our, our like attention, even like a dragon or um, a giant spider is worth building a relationship with, is worth um, treating with care as opposed to being afraid of them. So he is a not just a great lesson planner, but he's a great model, I think, for the kind of community that um, the story seems to be putting forward as as like a real source of strength. Like, does does his weakness for animals get him into trouble? Yes. Does it make him sad? Yes. Does it make him obscenely drunk? Yes. But, um, but he he also is a good i think all good teachers are both moderator and model right so they they help the students um move like i said from one side of the river to a side of you know the the other side where there is knowledge and skill and capacity but also they're always moving themselves and he seems to be a really good moderator and model um in that way and maybe Maybe Lupin has to be like that as well, in a way. Seems like those two are classes that were just really appealing. I'm I'm curious what y'all thought of the divination class. I, I've got some comments and some questions on that myself. And just to actually loop back around to your question, because I never answered it, I would say that there's a sense of balance provided by these three events. And again, we have sort of a Harry-centric view on this, just like we have a Harry-centric view on birthdays, right? Um, as he is the protagonist. He's heroically rewarded in the first uh, class, though that's marred by tragedy and sort of Mm -hmm. anger at a rival for doing that and getting what he wanted. And so Malfoy won one of Malfoy's sick little games there, which is get somebody in trouble who Harry loves. We're supposed to be going outside the normal social realm of games, which might be one of the nasty aspects of Malfoy. And then again, in uh, Divination, you get the reminder of death and the inevitability of its fate. And so that's the choice whether to accept it or resent it, like Lord Voldemort did. Of course, he did not accept that he had fate. That's why he broke his soul up in order to try and be immortal, scare quotes. And then in Professor Lupin's, there seems to be a lack of faith in Harry. Um, Even though what's interesting is Lupin's reasoning that Lord Voldemort would appear, I think, is sound because if... Harry is the universal hero, then the villain, his antagonist, would not be Malfoy, but would manifest as the universal villain, who is, of course, Voldemort. So universal that he's called, he must not be named. 
And so that's, I thought that was very strong reasoning. Though I, I, I did think Lupin was being overly kind and not quite honest when he said, when Harry thought that he might see a Dementor, that that suggests that Harry is afraid of fear itself. But I, I felt like that wasn't quite on, on point because isn't what Dementors do steal your happy thoughts? Um, not, not, uh, not make you afraid. I mean, even though they can inspire fear, of course, with that terrible kiss they can do. Um, I thought that basically they just sort of left you in sort of a hopelessness, sort of a Danteistic inferno or hell. Yeah, the, the, the comparison between the Boggart and the Dementor uh, struck me as being interesting, but yeah, not entirely convincing, I guess. Mm. Um, like, I know this is, this is a little bit of a weird way to think about it but like to turn around the three classes you, you can look at it from like the perspective of the kinds of danger that's in each one you've got, you've got the tea leaves which are dangerous primarily because you can't tell whether they're actually giving you information or not right like they may or may not represent something that you're actually unable to access like some mysterious truth that's out there right um that seems like, especially from Hermione's point of view, that's the scary thing about divination class, is that it might be complete nonsense, but it might be, it just might be real, and she can't understand it, you know? Um, then, you've got the, then you've got the Buckbeak and the book, and that's like, you know, savage, like powerful stuff that you have to approach with the proper reverence and devotion and um, imaginative openness or something. And then you got the boggart, which you have to be appropriately afraid of, but only so far, and then you can laugh at it to defeat it, right? So I don't know quite where the Dementor fits in with that that third one, especially. Um, but it's it seems like each of these things is in some way pointing at, yeah, what's different about Harry Potter? What is it about dementors um that he is finally like hitting his kryptonite when he comes up against them here um I, i'm not i'm not quite sure if if lupin's um yeah being entirely forthcoming uh, obviously he has some things that he's not telling either at this point yeah and um i'm really interested in that distinction between what divination is and uh, how Trelawney is, and Hermione and McGonagall's opinion of Trelawney. Uh, because we do find out that McGonagall is pretty impressive. We've known she was an animagus, but we didn't know that being an animagus was something to be impressed by. And we now also know that transfiguration is, like potions, a fairly precise science. And that um, uh, acute, rational, focused, attentive minds do well with that, like McGonagall's, a very tightly woven in, uh, person, Minerva, right? And Hermione as well, who has to be so tight with her time that she actually uses an instrument to, to alter it. Um, that's how precise she is. But um, this divination seems like something more like a, a more unconscious way of thinking, more like a, a, let, a free association, like a letting flow one's creative bent and um, sort of like what a good literary lecture is. It's as if you have to be creative um, to 
to do what she does. But in being creative, you have to be in sort of a state that is semi-conscious and therefore far less conscious than when you are um, using your awareness to be rational. Um, and so it is, I could see how someone like Hermione or McGonagall would see little use in it because to them, it would seem like you weren't doing anything but like lying around. And that is like how Trelawney's uh, space is set up. She's mm -hmm. sort of so aloof that she never comes down. It's way out of the way in the North Tower. Um, and it's full of like pillows and, and couches and it's very comfortable and there's incense in the air. It's heavy in there, it's described as. And she's got these eyes that are described as being several sizes bigger than normal eyes because of the magnification of her spectacles. And yeah, I mean, there just does, does seem to be a major contrast between her and McGonagall, though I, I would say that she does seem also to be necessary and correct about a few things. Right. Like Neville, drop like in. Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm gonna play devil's advocate. I mean, we know that Trelawney has been able to prophesy, like from, from other books in the series, we know that she has given prophecies um, and people like Dumbledore have considered them to be, you know, worthwhile. And people like Voldemort have considered them to be worthwhile. But like, are they worthwhile because we accord them value? I guess is, is, is it like an infinite loop where like you say that Neville is going to break the teacup and, and we know that Neville's kind of a klutz. And so, if you tell him that, does he, does that maybe make him hold it a little tighter and like walk with a little more uncertainty because he's afraid of breaking the teacup and then he's not looking where he's going because he's so focused on the teacup that he breaks it because he knocks, he like trips over something, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I like the things that are prophesied like, like oh the grim you're gonna die well like yeah um they're all gonna die um i guess i, I i'm i'm sort of with hermione in this one that like do these th are these things genuine or do they only have power if we allow them power um i i don't know I, and i don't know if that's like a slippery slope that you can't go down that that you can't engage with that kind of thought process i'm not i'm not convinced that my own hesitation is right or is fair or um logically sound it's just every time i get to this scene i think like what a, a load of absolute nonsense like <laughs> this is and that could be again that could be my bias for hermione's Very attitude Hermione. here but but like yeah like you said like she sits around in a tower with incense and like what exactly is she doing is there uh, whereas mcgonagall is all of the others well maybe not vince no offense wes but <laughs> they're like they're all doing stuff they're making stuff they're acting they're mo they're in motion and she seems to be not and and maybe in this world of magic like absolutely being free of motion is how you tap into some larger you know, static network in the universe that allows you to see truths. But I guess I'm just like, well, I wonder, I guess if, I, I have some objections. 
Yeah, I just, I wonder, Wes, <laughs> this is going to be maybe crazy, but I wonder to what extent she's supposed to be like sort of a poet who speaks the, the language of the age, or, or Friedrich Nietzsche, who, who sees the <laughs> philosophy of the future, right? Who in the day-to-day -day is sort of blind and looks like a fool, but in seeing the large-scale plan of things to come, is nail, gets the nail on the head. Because, I mean, and this is using text from further ahead, or farther ahead, but she, she is the one who has given the major prophecy that yeah. people are worried about in this world. And, and um, you know, I think your question about when we articulate things, to what extent does that affect our reality is a good one. But also... Um, yeah, I mean, Nietzsche is a great example. Or like, you know, by articulating a vision for the future, do you inherently affect... I mean, I think... I don't think he would think have articulated that vision if not thought he could affect the future. I th yeah, I think you certainly draw attention to what it is you say, but I think the choice of what to do with it remains with other people. I'm going to stop it right here and then send you all the email. Are you ready for that? Okay. Yep. All right, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Nietzsche. All right, we're back. Okay, just, uh, we were... <laughs> So we were just saying something uh, very, very interesting about um, the nature of articulation and how when somebody puts something into words, to some extent, something becomes focused on by the consciousness of a person or people that otherwise might not have been seen. I would not necessarily say that it brings it into being, but that it potentially makes uh, that you must first have your attention drawn to something before you can attempt to embody it. Like you hear about somebody becoming strong and then you focus on being strong and then you commit to the activities necessary to get strong. And, and um, um, that, that I think is just sort of very interesting and I think connects very well to the idea of saying a spell. Um, but just one thing I wanted to say about Trelawney, just to show that I am team Hermione and you, Sarah, is that the first note I made on my notes, which I haven't been looking at, is, is about in Dante's Inferno, of course, in Circle 8. Uh, it's the Circle 8 has the future yeah. and uh, The fortune tellers and diviners. That's right. That's right. And they're, they're actually horrific. Their faces are turned backwards so that their tears go down their butt cracks. Mm. And, um, <laughs> you know, but they are in the Circle of Fraud. And so it right. is... It is believed, and they're right next to the Barriters, the corrupt politicians. So uh, she is sort of, there is a notion there that she's at that level and that people in the wizarding community, and this is sort of interesting, Sarah, because I, I know that you're, you're both, you're, this, this might put you at odds with yourself, because if the general wizarding community is sort of against her for her art, which is real, isn't that sort of a bias or prejudice on their part? Sort of like that, which we see yeah. in the love good. Yeah, I mean, well, I see Luna. Luna's different, all right? I mean, yeah, in many true. ways. She is very different, right? Agreed, agreed, no <laughs> doubt. I think what I object to with divination and Professor Trelawney is, like, I don't think this is a subject that you can teach. Yeah. Now, okay. here's the place, the, the place where what you just said now has to give me pause, and I might actually be holding two different opinions that contradict themselves when they take 
I find that I do that a lot sometimes and it's really starting to make me feel kind of silly and ridiculous that like I believe two seemingly unrelated things and then when you take them all the way to their logical conclusions they're actually diametrically opposed Same. Anyway, Very but, um, <laughs> so with with divin I mean like what you just said was that what if divination is like the poet who is speaking uh like universal kind of eternal truths uh -huh. in a world that can't quite accept them at the time well like I'm a I'm a spiritual person I I do believe in prophets and um, martyrs and people who speak truth in times when that truth is unwelcome and they get lambasted by the society in which they live and are trying to make right. I do, I do believe that like poets hold a really special place in our society and have a really important role that, you know, they, we need them to fulfill. Um, and, and in that sense, like, and I do believe that poetry as a skill can be taught. Um, you know, there are some people who are more naturally gifted at it than others, but you know, in poetry writing is a, is a craft and a habit. And just like a lot of other writing, it can be learned. Um, so if Trelawney is like the poetic version of a professor, then, then I have to accept that she has a place but I, I guess the, what we have seen of the class so far is like not impressive to me, but I think you, Alex, earlier you mentioned something that maybe, maybe explains for me why my, and my initial reaction to it is like, what a load of BS, is that part, part of what, what that class exposes is that this is a class rooted in interpretation of things that cannot, fundamentally be one way or the other. This isn't math class where they're like, there's a right way to do it and a series of wrong ways to do it. Um, and like those tea leaves could look like a lot of things, right? <laughs> that's, that's, I think my, right, right. Like, oh, it could be a cross, but it's also a dog and maybe well, it's yeah. also a sheep. And you're not practically working on any skill in a direct methodical way. So as like sort of a rigorous teacher too, I can see why you would sort of hate that. That's a lot of time wasted that you could be using to build skills. But uh, Wes, I, I'm sort of interested because, you know, we've known each other for a few years now. And, you know, it used to be the case that I sort of thought that Professor Trelawney's class would be right up your alley. What do you think of it? <laughs> yeah, I uh, I have a mixed feelings about it as well. Like I I see the aspects of it which are appealing um, because they're so hard to pin down. Um, there's there's definitely like a party within the school that seems drawn to that, right? The lavenders and parvatis of the group uh, par form like a, a clique kind of around Trelawney and her her style. Uh -huh. um, she has a cult but, of personality. But yeah, and, and she definitely does seem to cultivate that. Uh, she stays up in her tower. She doesn't come down to all the um, social gatherings. Uh, I, I draw the line though at sort of um, at, at being like, here's the interesting thing about her class, right? It's like 
she knows something um, that no one else can seem to grasp and no one else can be sure that she knows it or like you can't um this is something you run into with people who are like religious believers right uh you can't define for them whether they really believe something or not you you have to take them at their word um and it's well i, I guess you can you can try to tell them that they don't believe what they're insisting that they believe, but they don't usually like that very much if you try to do that to them. Uh, so I feel similarly towards anyone who's like got a sincere belief about anything um, that, that you, it's very dangerous to say that they're, they're doing that in bad faith or that they're a charlatan, even if there's a certain amount of evidence that would seem to corroborate that, that doubt in your mind about their faith, you know? So that, that's kind mm-hmm. of my convoluted take on, on Trelawney and why I would ultimately say, yeah, I would totally take that class. And well, just something interesting that popped into my head while you were talking, my own crystal ball, is that it seems like each of the classes is, as they move forward, becoming more practical. And to what, it, and I, I wanted to consider how a good education does involve becoming more practical, that you hit theory, but that you get closer and closer to practice by the end of it. I, I was thinking particularly of Hagrid's class where you have to actually, you know, show some respect and ride, a, you know, a hippogriff. I was thinking also of Lupin's class where you finally have to face your fears and he actually articulates the tools necessary for you to face them, unlike Lockhart, who just released a bunch of pixies, like a bunch of snakes in the room. Um, <laughs> Uh, even in potions, with the fact that Trevor the Toad is going to be fed this potion, it takes on sort of a, a very serious aspect. It's a good thing Hermione helped out, or otherwise we might have seen something really nasty happen. Neville. And um, I know they have several other classes like Charms. and uh, But it is interesting which classes we don't really get as much here, right? Like Charms, we don't get so much. And herbology, we're not getting so much, though there was a big focus on it last year um, uh, because of these new ones. But yeah, yeah, so, and I wanted how that connected to what you were just saying about Triani, Wes, is that it's funny with the wake of all these classes becoming so practical while other classes now open up, then you have like the seemingly least practical class possible also appear as an elective. Um, and to what extent it sort of jars us because it is it is not along the same path as the other courses. Here's well, one way I would say say it is extremely practical though okay. is that you is that you you see her kind of political acumen at work and you see how she like understands people's psychology and how to kind of mess with their expectations and play upon you know like she notices that Neville let let's assume that she doesn't have any actual magical foresight but she just notices that neville is like a nervous kind of kid yeah. and she's like oh like don't don't worry too much about breaking that one but just use the other one next time and so then he does like that's that's a incredibly like if that is the case if you go like that that direction with it that's incredibly practical um yeah right. so so she's like a david blaine in that way that right <laughs> how perceptive she is about people and so that she can sort of defraud them and while they know they're being defrauded and that's how gifted she is um mm-hmm. that's a, yeah that's very interesting that sort of press there is 
I think there's something to be said for the higher you get in education, um, especially at Hogwarts. Like if, uh, it, like yes, practicality, but also the absence of practicality in the sense that, I mean, like that isn't that the isn't that the argument against things like philosophy or theology or you know St. John's. Well, I think like. It's th not practical, right? But like, and yet you and we all know that it's exceedingly practical. It's just not always practical in like that it doesn't teach you an actual, uh, uh, like a, a, well, that's not true. It does teach you skills. It just, they're much more like foundational, maybe. Um, I, don't, I don't know if that, it, you're not learning how to like balance a checkbook or build a bridge, but you're learning other things. I don't know. I think what it starts is gives you in theory what you need to embody in your life to be, a, to live a good life, to be a good person. And that- But that's me, terribly practical. That's right. That's right. And that's, that's why I think it's the height of education, to be able to embody the virtues you first just simply learn about and talk about. Mm -hmm. um, and- that's what I think the Hogwarts education is supposed to be, that you and the magic become more and more one thing as you start to embody the magic. And mm. that that's sort of like how we sort of enslave ourselves to skill acquisition for many years of our lives. And then we can embody the skills and we're a totally different person. We're now the person we were as a child, but now with a whole bunch of skills and like an expertise. And so we've built like a whole new consciousness to deal with that skill set and so we have like melded with what we have become and i well i think that's the point of an education to transform to become something um to actually mm -hmm. become something to become something new you you know like the i think that's what the hieros gamos is the holy marriage you married to your craft um i think it's one of the holy marriages i think the actual marriage is also pretty incredible but um, this is this is cool too. Um, <laughs> but that's what I mean by practical. That you're 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 not just sticking with theory, and you're not using learning simply useless things. I'd say I'm mostly saying it not in contrast to theory, but in contrast to learning useless facts and things that don't matter. Mm -hmm. You should only be learning mm -hmm. things that are relevant to your life, um, uh, because those are the things that stick in your mind. And yeah. um. I, I think anything beyond that is artificial to the extreme. And we know, we know as teachers that that does not work. Just trying to stick things into kids' heads that don't matter to them. Yeah. Um, that's, that will never, ever work. There is no reason why it would work, even psychologically speaking. It's like children know what's relevant to them. And uh, they're, they're building up from a very low level at the time we meet them. You can't be talking to them about the most sophisticated international political issues at 14. You need, you need to be teaching them something a little more foundational, um, a little more psychological, a little, a little more about things like courage, things that are naturally meaningful to them. Um, mm -hmm. I, I would say, and I would say that's a big appeal to this book, right? Like, who didn't feel scared for Harry when he approached Buckbeak? Who didn't feel resentful towards Lupin and the world because of Hogsmeade, not facing the Boggart. We all wanted to see what that Boggart was gonna become. 
We wanted to see Harry face it down. He didn't even get the shot. He missed the shot. Who hasn't missed a shot at something before? He started just, again, to bounce back to your question, Wes, it's like he gets the highs, but he definitely gets the lows, too. Um, part of being who he is is that life is not just always fun. There's a lot of pressure on him. Um, yeah, the, the, the relationship that he develops with Lupin as a result of that moment, though, is, is pretty interesting, though, right? Because um, he, he only has this, this head-to-head -head with Lupin because he doesn't go to Hogsmeade. He's left in the castle. And because he has something to say to Lupin about how the class went, um, it, sort of, it sort of draws them together. I saw the same thing happening with, um, with, with Ron and Hermione, too. They, they kind of get over their little tiff because they're both sad that Harry's getting left behind. You know, that's sort of what brings them back together again. That's um, interesting that uh, Harry and Lupin come together based on the fact that they're both exiles. And in fact, right, that Lupin is exiled from a normal mm -hmm. life and is um, also actually directly receiving a potion from Snape at that time, which is another clue as to his condition, just like what he saw with the Boggart, which we saw as a silver orb, because we were primed to see a silver orb, like, right, right, like Professor Trelawney's class or the prophecy that she said. It was like one of those false friends, a foe of me, suggesting in the course of the book mm -hmm. that, oh, man, look, that prophecy about the Grimm that Trelawney told, totally true and that's what like lupin saw right there it's like it's another sign but no 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 it's not a sign it's a moon which we don't find out until later i, I think hermione finds out for us actually again typically um excellent work hermione um, <laughs> um um okay so yeah well where were we after that bit um do we want oh yeah we were talking about what draws harry together with lupin i did have a question but I do want to move on to Hogsmeade after this and get going in just a few minutes. Um, but does Harry, through the course of the books, end up spending more time with Lupin or with Sirius Black? Because I feel like the answer is actually Lupin, though he seems to have even more affection for Sirius. I don't. You mean know. over the course of the entire series? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think like in terms of, of like minutes and pages, it's definitely more time spent with Lupin. Um, it's, it's interesting because it's On like, either end of book five, right? Yeah, because it's like Somebody. Harry resonates more with Sirius because he's a lot like his father and thus they have the, a very similar bond to what Sirius would have had with his father. But it is Lupin that he learns so much about himself and his father and his friends from actually it is lupin who actually teaches him skills in defense against the dark arts and later a major charm right the patronus charm something very difficult and so i just thought it's interesting that sirius is often painted as harry's father figure but it really is a distributed role for him Lupin is very much a father figure. I think also Dumbledore, Dursley, though not a good one, the Weasley man. And this accords, I think, nicely with your point about how adults treat him differently, that Hagrid is to some extent a father and older brother figure. Um, and um, even, even uh, Snape and Lucius Malfoy are negative father figures. Mm -hmm. um, because Snape's for sure teaches him valuable stuff. And just like Lupin will teach him something special um extremely special how to keep people out of his mind 
I mean, that's, that is a major gift. That's like enemy skill in Final Fantasy VII. Um, I think it's Occlumency. But, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I wonder as, as like sort of orphan and universal hero to what extent each older male occupies the position of the father for him. And the, that's, mm -hmm. that's sort of like what he does. And, and as readers, they occupy that position for us too. Um, I'm not sure what my question is exactly, or if that's just an observation. Uh, yeah, I, I think Harry's interesting in that respect that he doesn't, he doesn't have the, the physical, biological father around. And so he's a kind of, uh, he's kind of able to or required to pick up all of the things that he would have got from that father, from all these different characters who, um, in positive and negative ways, are, are teaching him those lessons, you know? Uh, we saw this, like, with the Mirror of Erised at the very start. I thought that was another kind of interesting parallel here. You, you mentioned how the, the ride on the broomstick is like the ride on Buckbeak. Yes. But I think, I think the battle against the Bogarts and the Mirror of Erised are kind of a cool ah. um, parallel as well. Because it's like one shows you the thing you fear the most mm. and the thing that you desire the most. And we saw that Harry was able to kind of overcome the Mirror of Erised and he, he, got it, he got it to work for him where, you know, uh, it, it results in him pick, picking up the Sorcerer's Stone. Um, and we'll, we'll have to wait and see. I think the Dementors, when he overcomes them, that's sort of the parallel to that scene, I guess. Um, that well, that is a great point. That is a great connection. Yeah, really excellent. And it's funny because I just lectured on Circle 8, Bulge 10, Counterfeiters and Alchemists today and explained the history of alchemy to my students and also how all empirical science comes out from alchemy and that the whole point of it was to become immortal and the question I put to them with our ever-increasing technological advances and medical ones is, you know, is that still the dream of science? Are we still fulfilling the dream of alchemy? And I wonder to what extent this magical world shares that dream but just with a different method um, because they did find the Philosopher's Stone but then they gave it up. So what is it that they're striving towards as a people, if not immortality? Perhaps something even more important well, I think, to living beings. I think it is immortality for some of them, right? Like right, the negative. Giving up, like right, like destroying this, destroying the stone was only the choice of like the most wise of wizards. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think the the vast majority of them part of what makes it so appealing, like you said, you've said a couple times, is that, is that the, these characters are dealing with very human impulses, desires, um, uh, experiences, fears, all of that, like all the stuff that the mirror and the Bogart and everything in between is presenting us with is like incredibly recognizable. So it would be, I think it would be really surprising if, if they, if the characters were somehow so different from human beings and that they didn't fear death or, um, you know, long for maybe not immortality, but, you know, uh, to somehow control their own mortality. Um, well, I, yeah, you know. I, think, I think to live as meaningful an existence as possible, like the existentialists and phenomenologists would say, that what not, none of these people want to live to be immortal. 
They want to sacrifice themselves for a cause, which we'll see later on. They're happy to do it because it's the good life for them. And I think that's what these stories, mm -hmm. that's one of the things these stories are supposed to show us, that that is the good life, that that is being in the magical world, that that's like sort of Abraham Maslow mm -hmm. called a peak experience, living with maximal peak experiences, which are like, you know, the feeling of victory or graduating or receiving an A plus, the major dopamine rush when you feel like you're, like everything's coming together, um, great feelings. Um, that this, this story is about maximizing those feelings and thus being maximally alive. Um, I like that. I never really thought of that. That's good. Neither did I until I was talking to y'all. So some about articulating reality or creating spaces or perhaps Hogwarts is made by the wizards and the, you know, not by the castle, but by the wizards and the witches who are making the spells inside of it. So Wes, is there anything we need to say before we end this? Oh, uh, we've, we were gonna do our ridiculous charms on our field. Oh, yes, yes. Um, so getting back to a habit we had been in, we want to we we wanted to put a question to ourselves, which is, if the boggart were to manifest in front of us, what would it be? What would you do to turn it ridiculous? What would you do to make it laugh? Uh, this, yeah. this is a tough one. Do either of you want to volunteer to to go first? I call Neville. Like I want to be Neville and as as much as possible in my life. And so I want to go first. I'm going to say um, some sort of zombie apocalypse. Usually I have a nightmare where it's sort of combined with like nuclear holocaust type, type of deal um, slash alien invasion. Like just mash up all those things. And that's what the Boggart turns into. Is it and just going to be like a PS4? Like... <laughs> it's like it's it's zombie alien nuclear explosion and my um my ridiculous charm on it is of course to hide under my um 1950s era school desk and duck and cover and it doesn't hurt me it's it turns out to be completely harmless <laughs> that's, that's like the mushroom cloud becomes like candy dust or something yeah <laughs> It's just, it's, it's all completely, um, like, as long as you duck and cover, it can't hurt you. That's what we've learned. Uh, okay. Well, this is difficult. I, I fear a lot of things, but I'm not, I'm not really sure what uh, I fear the most. But off the top of my head, um, uh failure I think I would put it I don't really know what that how that would be embodied um and uh um sorry to get like maybe kind of a disappointed priest walks out <laughs> I guess a priest could definitely be the embodiment of the bogger because I think one of the things that's just been on my mind in the last maybe a month or so in like in the wake of the um document that was published by the um attorney general for pennsylvania and then in the wake of all this these um renewed conversations about sexual assault i think like sexual predators are is something that <laughs> that uh, uh that i'm really afraid of and um uh so i guess it could conceivably be like a really shitty priest 
who walks out of that wardrobe. But um, <laughs> I, and I don't really know how I would m manifest that except perhaps uh, how I would make that ridiculous, except um, that I think that what those people crave more than anything is power over other people. And so if you could like, I don't know, strip them down to their boxer shorts, that happen to be really embarrassing or something like that and take away their power. I don't know. I know well, I came up with this I, question, I meant, but I have a really shitty answer. Yeah, well, I meant more a priest who was looking at you as if you had oh. done something. Failed. And so was making uh, you feel no. that sort of guilt <laughs> because you, um, because, you know, you were looking for an embodiment of failure. And so I was thinking of an authority figure, <laughs> a sense of failure. Um, I mean, an embodiment of failure to me would be like being ridiculed by a lot of people pointing and laughing at you. And then, okay, that's a good image. Then how would I make them ridiculous? Um, point and laugh at them. I don't know. Um, uh, what, if, what if they start yeah. sliding around on ice and falling on their butts? Pointing and laughing at me and then poking each other in the eyes as they point and then Ooh. yeah that's pretty that's pretty uh medieval of you right there i know so I'm, I'm, I'm feeling really like i'm feeling really inspired by dante right now yeah like, that's good stuff wanting to punish yeah you're <laughs> like you're like leaves the world blind yelling at him that'd be great <laughs> so i was just doing okay what about you alex i was just doing some free association so if i were but if i were to give a historical answer I would say something like it, that Pennywise clown, because I'm super terrified. <laughs> oh, yeah. Growing up. Um, but if I were to give a philosophical answer, and this is not my real answer either, I would say myself, I would walk out of there. Ooh. Oh. I'd have to give a good look at myself. Mm. And uh, how I'd make that ridiculous is, I don't know, I'd just have to, I would have to actually, I don't know, see it for what it is, and then I think I would smile. And then poof. Um, but I was when I free associated just now, a giant book came out that tried to suck me in like a black hole. Mm. And I thought about that and how I would make that <laughs> ridiculous. It's funny because I thought about making it ridiculous, but I made it more horrifying at first. Because then I made blood <laughs> down the pages. And I was like, that is what makes something horrifying when it's already scary and then it gets even scarier. It's like it fries your, your fear circuits. You're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but um, yeah, how would I, that, that is an interesting uh, I mean, charm because you do have to think it up pretty fast. Um, well, if you, could, if you could open the book and then have it be like, have it become a garden or something I, like that. Oh, that's great. So I really like that because mine was definitely too boyish. Like my idea was all the pages fly out and become paper airplanes. But <laughs> I, like, I, I like the idea of it falling flat on its back and opening up into a garden. I think that's actually perfect. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's very nice. So instead of it sucking me in, it becomes the thing that I cultivate. And so instead of just being a reader of books, being a producer of ones as well. Well, hopefully we can turn all of this into a series of books uh, between us at some point, however we end up wanting to write it um, and what yeah. it happens to be. I mean, we're putting things 
in the air or laying them out in stone, as it were. And so, well. Right on. Anna so next time. Ah, yes, next time. Next we went through chapter eight, yeah? Yeah. We didn't even talk about it either, but we'll get it next time. The fat lady? Yeah, we got to talk about the fat lady. Um, I, it looks like it's a solid 50 pages if we do nine and ten. Solid. Are you all good with that? Yeah. Sure. All right, cool, because then we're on track to hit the Patronus and uh, Quidditch game for next time. So that's pretty cool. Okay. Right on. Okay. All right. All right. That, this is great. I'll see you all later. See you next week. All right. Good night. Take it easy. See ya. Bye. Bye. Bye.